Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, welcome to How I Got Greenlit. I'm your host, Alex Legion, here with my co-host, Ryan Gibson. Hi, everybody. And we're here talking with Kelly Lynn Ryder, actress, producer, writer, and pretty much more hyphenates to come from what I'm hearing. <laughs> she has a very varied career, very varied, and a lot to talk about of uh, modern cinema and how to make your way and make your own films and make other people's films and very much a self-starter in the business. So welcome, Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, Kelly. Really appreciate it. Of course. You know I love you, Ryan. I know. What uh, I love about this business is you join a crew and you join a family and you're very close. It's like summer camp and there's romances and rivalries and love fairs and all kinds of stuff. And then three weeks later, you drift away and mostly don't talk to those people again until you work with them again. But but every (laughs) once in a while... Um, yeah, my first, you know, that's where my Canadian girlfriend, you know, was from, but no, uh, and then every once in a while you, you stay friends and you make real friends and you talk afterwards and it's not a showmance. It's a, it's a real live friendship. Do you, do you agree? Do you see that? I mean, it's true. I I feel like we all, part of the reason why we do this is for that, like camaraderie, right? Because you, you're even on your own schedule, right? Like you're like a team that's a part, especially when you're shooting like nights, like it's us against the world. Yeah. They don't understand us, man. When those squares are driving home, we're going to work, you know, like, like we're, you're up, we're on a secret mission and we're behind enemy lines. Yes, and, yeah. You're working together <laughs> towards a common goal. Collaborative yeah, effort. Yeah. yeah. No and bonding. Yeah. I mean, all night shoots. You're absolutely Intense right. Relationships. You strictly yes. off of high coffee. stress. Yeah. You just, yeah. Yeah. Yes. You quit smoking, but yeah, let me bum one. Yeah. Let me bum 10. Yeah. Oh, you brought me a pack. Oh, thanks, man. I got to quit. It's just everything and bad food and like whatever your health regimen was before you walked in, like you're on, you're on movie time now. Like, oh, out the window. It doesn't, it doesn't count. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. It's not cheating on your diet or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If you get a call sheet in the, you know, but at 10 PM the night before you, your all rules are out the window. Kelly, I was wondering, it'd be good for audience to know. And I'm sure there's going to be people who follow you quite closely. Can you do a little intro on yourself? Kelly Lynn Ryder. Of course. So my name is Kelly Lynn Ryder. I am based out of Los Angeles, California now, but I mean, isn't everyone in entertainment? So I'm just like all of, all of the others, but I am originally from the South. I'm from North Carolina and I am now an actress, producer, writer. I'm interested in directing as well. Writing has been sort of the newest of the things. (laughs) And yeah, I just, Produced, I just co-executive produced a movie in Thailand. It was a World War II film called Three Days in Malay. I also acted in it. I am a lead across from Bruce Willis right now in an action film called Deadlock. It is out for streaming and on all major airlines. It's in Netflix in New Zealand and Australia. And I think that it's coming to US as well. But TBD, I'll, hopefully by the time this comes out, it will have been on Netflix. So that's cool. 
just so you know, I'm going to interrupt you for a second on my, yeah. I just came back from Dallas and deadlock was a featured on Delta was a featured. Oh. Uh, yeah. On Delta Airlines. I'm going to cry. I saw, I saw, I know, I know. <laughs> I love, I love, I follow you. So on social media, on Instagram specifically. And I love how your fans post or even close friends will post. Oh, I, my friend is on. Uh, I love taking a flight and seeing my friend on the seat back. Fantastic. It's really quite an, uh, it's awesome, Kelly. No, I actually love getting those messages from people I've known forever, from people I just met, from people I don't even know. It's wonderful going through your day, knowing that somebody somewhere supports you. And I think that just when they yeah. when they randomly remind you of that in this industry, we hear so much rejection. I mean, we're so beat down on a daily basis that they have no idea how much that does for one psyche. It's a huge builder, right? Massive. It's, just, it's a huge, yeah. I think one thing people don't understand or maybe don't get is like, it's it can be lonely. <laughs> like this journey can be mightily lonely and... I'm not saying like we all have egos because, you know, high school drama club, we all do have egos getting, getting any type of warm touch of like, we, we love you. <laughs> um, especially when you sat and we'll get into this because, you, you know, usually the first part of the show is where we go, where, where did this love of, of film go? And maybe this is a good segue into this, but it can be difficult to make those first steps because it's rare that you just are like, I'm, I'm going to make movies and, or I'm, you know, whatever. And you just hop in and you're like, number one, it doesn't happen that way. It's a long, it's, it can be a long, lonely journey and you have to give number one on your call to do it. So. Oh yeah. yeah. That's a hard Um, road. No, the, uh, the overnight success of 20 years in the making. You know, (laughs) it's it's not what people think. And I think Ryan, you and I were touching on this the other day when we spoke briefly. It's funny because even when I was starting out, when you say actor, people from Hollywood and Los Angeles will roll their eyes and keep walking. People from North Carolina or surrounding areas that don't, you know, don't know about the industry will think that this is the most glamorous luxurious lifestyle. I mean, they think I live on a pedestal Mm -hmm. and it is not at all how this goes. And it's so funny to hear the different reactions from people here versus back home about sort of how I'm doing or if I'm doing well. I think they think I'm just bathing in dollar bills. I mean, I don't know what... (laughs) I'm not sure what the perception is or what it's based off of. But even me, when I'm... Before I moved here, I thought, you know, the Walk of Stars on Hollywood Boulevard was sort of the Rodeo Drive of California, if you will. And I move here and I get out of my car and I'm like, okay, what is that horrid smell? It's dirty. There's a layer of grime covering the stars. That's not grime. I mean, it's not at all what people think. <laughs> Don't. Oh, that's, that's, not, yeah. that's not grime. It's not right. <laughs> no, I, I think of it. It's not yeah. at all. Yeah. No, I, I, it's funny too. The, you know, like when I was setting up our Twitter, I put like Hollywood, California, but like that's from the old like cartoons that we would watch when we were little kids. And it'd be like, I don't know, Tom and Jerry, it'd be like made in Hollywood, California. And you realize nothing is made in Hollywood, California. And it's more of like a, a concept in our minds that we built of it. It's kind of like, 
the most New York people are people not from New York because they're like, I'm going yes. to wear black and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you dig one layer deeper and they're from Kansas and this is their reinvention. And LA has the same aspect in terms of, I thought Beverly Hills was on the beach or the Hollywood was on the beach. And it's like a whole different, like, uh-huh. you know, basically community. It's a bunch of villages that make up the Los Angeles, you know, cluster or whatever. And that Hollywood Boulevard was the nicest street in town with, you know, fancy restaurants and stuff. And yeah, I just wrote that into a script, how like these two people are falling in love and they're walking on Hollywood Boulevard and we can see what it really is, but they don't, right? Like it's glamorized because their subjective reality is, is different than, you know, the hobo like peeing on Gene Kelly's star or whatever, you know? Oh, of course. That pesky hope. But I mean, that's what we do, right? Like we're all filmmakers are really like dreamers kind of. I mean, not to be, you know, too ephemeral about it, but we're, we basically visualize, you know, we, we work really hard to make a thought in our head like real or that visual or, you know, visible for others to see, right? Either by a writer describing it or a, you know, cinematographer f- uh, photographing it or an actor Know, acting it out like we are so so coming here is like like you said you know i'm going to be a filmmaker i'm you know i'm doing this it's it starts with that kind of statement of intent and usually and i know ryan kind of comes from the same kind of world where they're like you'll never get out of this town you know like you're just full of shit like yeah whatever man you know shut up and keep loading boxes with us and it's that that's pretty much almost every person i know in the business is the weird kid from their high school, you know, either the prettiest, the prettiest boy and girl are the actors and the like weirdos, you know, in the back smoking and like plotting revenge are like the writers and, and on and on. But we're usually like all the misanthropes that couldn't quite, you know, stay in that little town. And then we all come together in Hollywood, California. (laughs) Right. Speaking of, you know, high school drama club and misanthropes, do you have a, a like a first memory or or concept of when you remember thinking I I'm enchanted by film? Oh yeah. So I caught the bug at quite an early age. I was always very interested in entertainment. I actually started singing at the earliest age. I was part of a professional children's traveling choir. And so I would perform in cathedrals with this, with these other kids around on the weekends. And I did it for fun and I really enjoyed performing. And then I remember I had a growth spurt when I was, I think 13, between 13 and 14. I remember I left school and I came back after the summer. I looked like a completely different person. I had grown six and a half inches. I was so, so thin, rail thin. I could not keep weight on just because I was growing so quickly. I would bake a batch of cookies a day and eat them. And just, I could not gain weight to save my life. And I started modeling. I I walked New York Fashion Week a few times. I sort of got into that world. And I was really interested in it, although it felt a little bit superficial to me because a lot of the jobs I was going on, you don't use your personality at all. It is not personality based whatsoever. And it's a very dark world. When I got immersed into it a little bit, there were, there were lots of drugs. There was lots of partying. 
a lot of people doing things to just cope their sort of curb their appetite and not eat, whatever that may be. It was a little extreme. And my family... How, how old were you? I was, how old were you? Was geez, this? Probably 12 to 14. I, I walked New York Fashion Week twice. Actually, I think I did it three times. I did it three times. I walked New York Fashion Week three times. Um, and then I was being offered contracts from fairly large agencies. You know, I was talking to Ford New York, New York Models, Elite New York, and they're some of the top in the world. I just, some of the things I saw modeling, you know, it was rough. I remember I went to the Waldorf Astoria in New York City for my fitting and I was 12 years old and I walked into the bathroom and there were girls trying to make themselves throw up. There was a girl who did not zip her dress and her mother was there with her, started beating on her daughter for not zipping the outfit. And you're, and you're 12 when this is happening? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's, yeah. that's a rough start. It was. It definitely was. And I was always really intrigued a lot for by entertainment. And I wanted to experience it. But I think at the same time, you know, even my family, my mom was there with me. I was a minor. I was under 18. No matter where I was, my mom had to be with me. And I think she was seeing all of this firsthand as well, going, this is not the world you want to put yourself in. You have a choice. You know, you have an, an academic route laid out ahead of you. Why are you even interested in this sort of thing? You know, what are you doing? And so then my freshman year of high school, I was in a little, a little local high school in Pittsburgh, super small town outside of Chapel Hill in North Carolina. And I saw that there was an open call in Baltimore. And I went, I waited in line for eight and a half hours in Baltimore, Maryland. And they were casting featured extras and day player roles. And I ended up auditioning. I did a monologue and I got a callback. And then I did the callback and I ended up booking a lead across from Terrence Howard. And that was my first movie. He's the star of Empire, um, Red Tails, Iron Man. You know, he's a pretty big one. He's been in a lot. And that was my first sort of foray with acting. And you had never, you'd never done no. it before. Your only experience. Before. And the, you went to an eight hour uh, casting call, <laughs> uh, hours away from your home. And how many people were you competing Oh, my against? gosh. I mean, thousands. 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 Yeah. No, I waited all day long into the night. And it was really interesting. So my grandpa, he's passed now, but I was very close to my grandpa. And he hated the modeling industry. My, um, I guess my second cousin, her name is Colleen Sedman. And she was number two model right behind Christy Brinkley in her day. She's... She has an empire. She's massive. Um, and he heard horror stories from her about the modeling industry, about fake photographers jumping off of boats, swimming away. I mean, knocking guys out on photo shoots, just horrible safety experiences. And he had always told me that he really, really wanted me to get out of modeling because he didn't think it was a good choice. He thought that 
I would just be compromised in some way at some point and not be able to return to what I was before, mentally, physically. He was very concerned. And the night that I got back from my callback audition, or sorry, my second callback from Baltimore with my mom, we walked in the door and we had found out that he had passed that day. And I got the call about five minutes later that I had booked that movie. And we always thought that it was really interesting that he was so against modeling, but he was for acting. He thought that that was a better world to be in. And, you know, there are bad things about this world. There are good things about this world. But the way that it happened, I always think of him whenever I book a job, whenever I do anything, I always wish that he could have seen me now, you know, and I hopefully he's watching down and seeing sort of the memories I'm making now and the accomplishments I have had because I did what he wanted. I did. I stepped out. It's, it's crazy, you know, look at a situation. And I always say this that I'm like, well, someone's got to be looking out. For yeah. Because it's just, it's, there's too many cosmic coincidences. Can we? Oh, absolutely. That, Can we, that, I think that. Sometimes in life, like you were saying, Ryan, things are just too coincidental to be coincidences. Right. And, you know, <laughs> I think that a lot of things on my journey in entertainment have been like that. You know, whether some people call it divine intervention, whatever, you know, you want to, you want to, angel label on my shoulder. It. Yes. Things have happened to me. I don't know exactly why, but there have been a few really weird ones to where I really do believe at this point I am where I'm supposed to be. And I always tell people that when I set out to Hollywood, I did not have a clear picture of what exactly I wanted. You know, I think that a lot of people have the same goal as, yeah, okay, I want my face on a billboard and I want everybody to know my name and I want you to turn on your cable TV show and my face pops up. I didn't necessarily know what my checklist of things was per se, but where I am at now with the work I have put in and the grueling nights and all of the tears and the rejection and the relationships lost and the friendships, I have accomplished enough to where now it was all worth it for me. I have gotten to sort of where I thought I might not get to. And I've done that and I've proven it to myself and I'm you know nowhere near where I want to go. But it does... I can justify sort of moving here and leaving my previous life, if you will, behind. I have enough memories and experiences to really reflect now. And it was funny, I used to look back on the industry and sort of have resentment. I think a lot of us do for the amount that we give to it and the little that we get back from it. And my scales recently have leveled and I do have sort of a newfound appreciation for it. But but back in Carolina, you know, Ryan, I think the first time I met you, we chatted. I, I actually opened up to you pretty quickly. We chatted about my journey getting here and how it was a little less than pretty in a lot of ways. And being in North Carolina, 
I, I was never raised to think, and I never did think that entertainment was a profession. I thought that it was a hobby at best. And in order to make it a profession from where I was and what I came from, I had to make dramatic choices in my life that really, I gave up a lot. Since I know some of the background, your parents are professionals and they're in the higher education field. Is that yeah. Is that, yeah. So my dad is a computer science professor and he he's honestly the smartest guy I've ever met. I have so much respect for him. You know, he was a Moorhead scholar at UNC Chapel Hill. He graduated, he was valedictorian of UNC Chapel Hill. This man is so... That's not possible. (laughs) He's so smart. You can't be that. I think Alex, I think Alex was a valedictorian as well. I think he was the smartest guy. Oh, Alex, is that true? Were you the smartest guy? Uh, No. No. (laughs) As our our friend, uh, as our mutual friend, Mitch, once said about me, you're the smartest guy in the room, but then you have to let everyone know it. Yeah. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, I forgot that caveat. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh my gosh. So it's like, yeah. You, you have an advantage and you make it a disadvantage. <laughs> <laughs> and so is your mother in academia too? Or, she is. Or? Yeah. She yeah. started off with accounting and she then went back and got her teaching degree. And she is also a teacher as well. So I come from a very academic family, you know, even my extended family all in business, you know, like CEOs of companies, you know, very, very intelligent crew, I would say. So they were all, they were all like, yes, don't go to college, seriously get into (laughs) acting. This is the best course of action for you. They supported you from the beginning, right? Oh, of course. (laughs) No. No, that's not... I was hoping you would be like, no. Uh, no, they didn't. Okay. No, they love you to death. They clearly love you to death. But what What was the... Because you went, you went to North Carolina, right? You I got did. a full ride, something crazy. Like, you're a genius level person. <laughs> I, um, I started college very early at a very young age. And that was also just socially awkward. So I started college at 15 and a half at UNC Chapel Hill studying biomedical engineering. And I'm sorry, sorry, what (laughs) you were, you were 15 and a half and studying biomedical engineering. I was, that's what you just said. Yes. I, I wanted to design prosthetics. I thought it would be, I love math and science. I love making concoctions. I love being in laboratories and blowing things up and 3d printing. And I'm such a nerd. So I um, I thought that biomedical engineering and making prosthetics would be a really fun day to day fulfilling occupation. Help, helping pe- helping people with your brain in a, in a, in a yeah way. definitely. And I was sort of on that path, trying to not even. The thing was, ever since I did that first movie, freshman year of high school. What what was what was that? It was called, was and it was called. There was a massive lawsuit argument between directors and producers on set. Unfortunately, the movie never came out. I do have a tad bit of footage, but at this point, Terrence is so much younger. I'm so much younger. It. I don't know that it's even usable in a reel. But that was, you know, still my first memory. And it's so it's so hard because that, I think that's why writers are so crazy. We were talking about how writers have like a ten thousand yard stare. It's because of rejection. 
Like mm-hmm. there's, so, as you said, like there's so much rejection to do this thing. There's a lot of people that want to do it. There's not a lot of opportunity to do it. It's going to be 95% rejection. If you're an actor, if you're a writer, if you're a producer, I mean, it's just, it's a constant. It's no, brutal. You know, it's brutal. And, it's savage. And, and, and yeah, I, I don't place. know, I don't know if the passive aggressive thing is an easy way for people to say no, that have to say no all day. Because I do have empathy for like a development executive that has to yeah. pass because their job is defined by if I don't pass on the right stuff, I'm going to get fired. Yeah. You know, I can't say yes to everybody. And then maybe it starts to chip away at your soul and you're like, so this just wasn't good. Go back uh, to, to, to Boston and bartend. Oh, God. I think that <laughs> in this industry, the toughest lesson that I had to learn, I'm still dealing with it. Literally, you know, looking at my phone now even gives me anxiety is telling people no. You know, I mean, I have friends that ask me to do films for lower than my rate for favors. And, you know, I mean, all the time, just favors, 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 favors. And or something about it in your gut doesn't feel right. And if you're a people pleaser whatsoever, or if you just want to be cordial, it's hard to have to tell people no all the time in this business. And I am, that was the worst thing for me. I used to try to make everyone happy. And I have changed a lot. I think I've grown and evolved a lot from entertainment because you realize that... (laughs) I realized very quickly that I would always say yes and try and put everybody before myself. But when the table was turned, nobody would put me first. So when they had the opportunity to do the same thing back or give a favor back, nobody would. And I realized that I was just sort of lowering myself on the pegs and making myself a lesser and lesser priority in my own life in order to accommodate other people when they wouldn't do the same thing for me. And I've slowly been trying to climb back up that ladder of taking care of me first. I mean, daily, I deal with this in this industry. I'm sure I'm sure y'all do too. We all do. Yeah. More and more, I, I want to talk about the psychology. We, Ryan and I did an interview with somebody and here's, here's my premise. Like, do we, do we as people who've come out here and dedicated our life to this, obviously the blanket answer is, well, I want to make art and I love film and this is what I'm doing. But I was trying to dig deeper and say, like, because it is a chaotic life. Right. I mean, it's like you said, oh, it's, it's a constant nose, it's constant <laughs> scrabblings for your next gig. It's a lot of chaos. It's a lot of unsurety. It's like Easter famine. And I had a moment of self-realization where I don't know exactly if that's a byproduct of our pursuing our dream of film or rather if we're just crazy people who live on that chaos because we came from a certain background or family of origin or whatever and that's our that's our safe place or that's our familiarity is ups and downs and we found a profession that continues that emotional roller coaster but now for fun and profit yeah you know i don't know it's funny it is funny to look at because i think that a lot of people in corporate nine to fives and who i know they seek they have all the stability and they seek the adventure and the unknown. And for a lot of us in entertainment, we have all the unknown and all the adventure 
and we just crave stability. You know, if you, it's funny how the worlds sort of crave what the other wants. I, I thought this was funny too, you know, not, but a few months ago, one of my cousins was having a, an adorable baby girl and she and the husband waited in order to just see if the baby was going to be a boy or a girl when they were born. And it was funny because they were doing this as sort of an exciting surprise. And I could not wrap my head around it. Not that there's anything wrong with it at all. Just I, you know, on a day-to-day basis in our lives, a million things change and are thrown up in the air. And we could book this um, the best job ever. And we could be set for three years financially. And then we could lose it all in the next hour. And then the project gets canceled. And then you're, you know, oh, pack your bags. You're going to France tomorrow. Oh, no, never mind. We moved to Montana. I mean, it's just constant mayhem. And I could not wrap my head around a decision that I could have the answer to, choosing to not know it. I think it's so funny how opposite our lives are from sort of a more stable situation. <laughs> I don't know. If they y'all really are. That. And that's, and that's, no, I, I totally feel like that. I, you know, I, I lived it. I mean, I was married to somebody who couldn't take it. Mm. Eventually. You know, I think your point is really valid, Kelly. I, I don't think there's an in-between no. of either like the grasses or you're either, you either have stability and you and I think that's why there's a lot of people in this business who actually end up taking drugs, alcohol, tobacco, firearms. Yeah, I I was going more with more with like the corporate. Like they end up leaving. I mean, because part of the job is you know part of this lifestyle is attrition, and part of it is people are just like I can't, I can't anymore. Whether they find varied success or some success or no success, uh, whatever your ranking of success is, I, I do think there's. I do think that just you have to have, if you don't have a thick shell, you develop one. And that's kind of what happened to me is I don't, I mean, I, I didn't have a thick shell and you either get, you either develop one or you learn to live with uh, just like, you know, running around with exposed nerves and, and that can be tiresome too. But to you and them. Yeah. Thank you again for joining us on How I Got Greenlit. We really appreciate you coming along for the ride. But before we go any further, I'd like to get a little serious with you all for a second. I know you've got plenty on your plate to think about these days, but something that affects all of us is the fact that Mother Nature is taking a beating these days. Wildfires, water shortages, and just plain weird weather are an unfortunate fact of life these days. The truth is, it's only going to get worse over the next few decades. So you might ask yourself, what can we do? One thing we do is get educated. Next Chapter Podcast and the Clio Institute have teamed up on a podcast called House on Fire, co-hosted by Katrina Irwin, a 24-year-old climate activist, and Caroline Lewis, the founder of the Clio Institute. House on Fire is a youth-centered podcast that takes its name from Greta Thunberg's famous speech. It's youth-focused because, let's face it, us adults are leaving a pretty huge mess to clean up for the next generation. Each episode invites scientists, activists, artists, and more to have important conversations about this complex crisis. And the topics they cover could help you make decisions about how you might want to vote 
or spend your hard-earned money in the ways that leave behind a better world for those to come. So listen to House on Fire wherever you get your pods to stay informed and involved, or go to thecleoinstitute.org to learn more. Now, let's get back to how I got greenlit. I know from working with you in the past, I mean, you're your... You are your own boss. You are a boss lady. Would, <laughs> is that what you'd class? you classify yourself as that? I mean, you make deals. You make your own deals. You, you know, it's right. That's what I am you do, very right? much a, a one woman show. Yeah, I think um, uh, you don't. You don't expect anyone to speak for you. Is what I'm saying. Oh, definitely not. No, and I think that people too, even in the industry. I mean, I get messages daily. Oh, well you know, how do I get into this? And what do I do? And do I need an agent? Or, you know, how do I go about this? I'm like, I don't know. You just do it. You know, there's no better answer than just doing it. Everybody has such a different course. Everybody has such a different path. I mean, I literally just politely harassed people basically until they started to hire me. And then I got on set and they realized I wasn't crazy and I was actually pretty good. And then they just kept hiring me. And then the word spread and more people have hired me since, you know, but it it was never an agency. It was never... No one made you. No. (laughs) No one broke you. And so, and so let me bring this back around to your dreams oh and, and aspirations. I'm Yeah, I'm going back to it, Kelly. <laughs> We're going to go back to it. So your dreams and aspirations, you're in Chapel Hill. You're going to North Carolina. Your parents are educated and in academia. You come from a family that not necessarily, you know, would be like, hey, uh, you, should, you, should, you should follow your dreams and go do acting. Go act. It, it sounds so stable. <laughs> <laughs> and... And so what was their reaction? Because you, you did go, you did go to Chapel Hill for, yeah, for three years, yeah. right? Yeah. And then um, continued online after I moved actually. So, because I had, I had been there enough to where I had done a lot of the in-person labs and maths and sciences and the, the credits I needed to do in person there. So I could do a sort of the electives or whatever they were offered online, but I, yeah, so this was a whole situation and a half because I was very solid in my mind that I wanted to pursue this. I would sit in my dorm and I would be in the library and I would not even be able to really focus. I mean, I would get my work done, but it was not what I wanted. And I knew that it, would give me stability, but I didn't know that it would give me happiness. And I always felt like if I didn't try to really pursue this, I would always have a regret and that little voice in the back of all of our heads saying, what if? And I really started to look around at my options in the area. Even still, I was looking locally for what else I could do. And I had an old manager, sort of sort of manager, sort of an advisor at the time on the East Coast who linked me up with a friend of a friend who had a friend of a friend who knew a very large producer in LA. And he was actually casting his own show and looking for talent. And he was a very, very reputable, very wealthy guy. I 
auditioned for him. I talked to him on the phone via Zoom and he said, you know what? I think that this might actually be a fit for you. So again, I was, I was still under 18 at the time. He brought my mother and I out to California first class. We were in a very nice hotel and I did an in-person audition for him and in his office. I got no weird feelings. There were females around, you know, working at the desk and I got no weird vibes. I came back and I didn't hear anything, which was really weird to me because I thought that it had gone really well. I thought that I would at least hear something. The day after I turned 18, he called me and he offered me the role in California. It was an incredibly steep salary. It was a dream come true. And I thought that all of my, all of my dreams had, uh, had, you know, come, come true. And I basically said to my family that, uh, um, you know, I'm going and I love you guys very much, but I'm leaving and I'm getting a lease on an apartment for a year. I'm moving and I know nobody. I don't know where I'm going. I don't exactly know where I'm living. I don't know anybody in California. I just sort of stuck to my guns and left. And you were still at, you were still at school at this time, right? This was basically, you're like, I'm not, I'm, I'm following my dream. Yeah. This I, was me pulling away from everything that I had ever known and that right. I was currently doing and giving it a go. And I, I moved, I got, <laughs> I had never 18, seen the apartment. You're 18. 18. I'm fresh 18. And I got an apartment I had never seen, which was, a oh my gosh, which had a drug sex trafficking ring outside. I mean, it was just like the whole Hollywood story. I move and not, but I hadn't even unpacked my boxes. I go to meet with him, the producer in his office again. And he sits me down and he starts jabbering about wanting a fresh fish and that the fish here are polluted. And I don't understand what's going on. There's nobody in his office. He had me come in on a weekend. So it's just the two of us. His shirt was, um, he was wearing a button up shirt, like three buttons open to the wind chest hair exposed. It was, it was a completely different vibe, completely different. And there were pictures of his family all over his beautiful office and his children and his wife and these sentimental things. And then he put his hand on my leg and I immediately freaked out. I mean, I had so much pressure that I had moved here across the country, left everything I had known, made a lot of people feel badly for a lot of different things about why I wanted to leave. And and then this guy is going to want me to compromise myself. I, I honestly, I don't think I've ever been as upset as that day in my entire life. I immediately got hysterical. I stood up I started screaming at the top of my lungs, shrill, sobbing, losing my mind in his office. And 
I, I don't know if he would have pushed anything if I hadn't done that. I don't know, but I think he was honestly so taken aback at my reaction. Um, and then he started to yell back at me that I was ungrateful and that I wasn't willing to earn my position. And it was basically, I stormed out of his office and I, I didn't look back, but I lost the gig and all of the income that I was relying on. I, I didn't know what to do. I was in a lease here for a year in an apartment. I didn't know how to pay for. I didn't know how to face everyone back home and say, you know what? You guys are right. You told me so. I should have never come here. I, I mean, I was in a complete panic. I got every job I could under the sun. I worked, you know, at seven different retail stores. I did catering at nighttime. I did online teaching. I did extra work. I did anything I could possibly find. Threw a drink in my face. Like I, <laughs> at one of these catering events, like I, I was a mess. It was a mess. It was a mess. Um, for, I would say about five months of me completely scrambling, not knowing how to face anyone back home. Because what happened was exactly what a lot of them said. And I did not want to own up to making the biggest mistake of my entire life, which I felt like I had. So did you tell, did you, have you told that story before? I will very seldom, if somebody, if somebody makes a comment about the Me Too movement or about how, you know, things are so much better now, it hits a really sore spot with me. It hits a nerve because no, it's not better. People are just quieter. It's not better. I mean, maybe in some circles it is. The whole Harvey Weinstein situation. I am extremely glad that these things are getting out there and the untouchables in Hollywood are, you know what, now touchables. I'm really glad that the gap is being bridged, but it happens so often, even still. I mean, all the time. And when people sit there and say, oh, well, you know what? This has gotten better. I'm like, you know what? You Who would approach you? You're just saying this from your perspective. No, it hasn't gotten better. It really hits a very sore spot with me because I gave up everything for a man who wanted to just pull one over on me and take away my innocence. And I, I was jaded for a very, very long time. And I'm still angry. I'm not jaded as much, but I'm still angry. I trust nobody from that experience still. I mean, anybody. I don't trust anybody. Yeah. I'm really weird about trust. Yeah. And did you ever, ever come clean to your parents within that first year of this happening? Or anyone for that matter? I don't think that I could come clean with anybody, including myself. I don't even think I could grasp what happened. I mean, I was so lost and so confused and felt like I was in a tornado of just like, what the, like, what did I just do? It, this is not real. This is a bad dream. Honestly, I didn't even know how to face myself because I felt like I had made such a huge mistake. Nothing even about entertainment. I didn't even know you know, the first thing about entertainment in Hollywood, just the way the series of events unraveled. I mean, I grew up 
my best friends in the entire world, they've always been my family. And for them to, I don't know if, you know, if disappointed is a word in a way or not be proud of me or not, or me not exactly do what I thought they wanted really, really, really got to me. And then, you know, I thought that I had this stable plan of trying to make my dreams come true and I would try it and I would do it and I would have that experience. And then one day, you know, I could go back to North Carolina if that's what I wanted. And having this happen after I came here and having everything just fall apart so fast, I looked at myself and was like, okay, well, you made a massive mistake. This is your own fault. <laughs> I mean, really, I my apartment was a wreck, was an absolute wreck. I mean, there was literally a drug girl sex trafficking Dead. ring across the street. I would try and do, I would try and audition for independent films during the day because, you know, I'm here, I'm living here. I'm like, why would I not try to audition? I'm getting fired from my retail jobs because I'm missing work for auditions, but I need the jobs because I can't pay my bills because the job I came here for fell through because I wouldn't sleep with the producer because he's an absolute sleaze. And then I don't want to tell anybody what's going on back home because I'm super embarrassed about everything that's happening. And then I'm, you know, working jobs that I can find all night long so I can try and keep auditions open, you know, my time open during the day, which anything you work at night is sleazy. Like no matter if it's bar, you're going to run into issues in some way. After 11 o'clock, my grandpa always said nothing good happens. Nothing, nothing good happens. Nothing good happens. I have seen, I think also too, I was very honestly... In North Carolina, I was the Energizer Bunny. I was the happiest person you'd ever meet. I was smiling and just a literally a ray of sunshine. And the first year of being here, that was completely stripped of me. It was gone. I had seen so many things that I did not want to see at 18 years old that I didn't even really know existed. Horrid, awful things. And I, I slowly, after... After I got my feet back on the ground a little bit, I, that slowly started to go away. And I sort of started to, to develop an appreciation more for this industry and for this world. And, you know, you sort of have to weed through the people you meet and the experiences you have to really focus on the good ones. Because when you have the good ones in this industry, they're the best. When you have the bad ones in this industry, they're the worst. And you have to sift through so much and just hold on to the best. And luckily, I've tried to position myself over these past few years to put myself in a position to set myself more up for success or what I think the best way is to get there. And I feel like I have. It's been going really well. And I've been more comfortable with everything and just happier. I've developed that appreciation and I've gotten back on my feet and I've I felt more stable than I ever have, you know, in California, in this industry, because as you know, when you don't know how much you're going to make this year, let alone this month, let alone this week, let alone today, do you, you know, can you buy this? Can you plan this trip? No, you're going to miss this wedding. You can't commit to anybody. They get mad. They lose, you know, you lose your friends, you lose 
you have to cut people off. They don't understand the priorities. They don't understand the long hours on set. They don't understand anything about this life. I can't tell you how many times people have asked me for money. I'm like, I don't have it either. I don't know what you want me to say to you. I mean, they just, they're so far removed. It, it would frustrate me before that nobody really understood. They all thought that I was doing well. And I'm over, I'm sitting over here going, what, what are you seeing? What picture are you seeing? Because I'm over here crying all night long, hearing nothing but rejection, trying to pay my real bills to live in an apartment across from a sex trafficking ring. Like, what do you guys think is happening? <laughs> but, right. but finally, the hard work started to pay off and the mentality of just, you know, I have to keep going because even in the beginning, I, you know, I think my favorite story ever of my entire career is when this role didn't work out, when I moved to California with this sleazy producer who fired me. The first job, I remember I went to this little like indie film casting call in a little makeshift theater in NoHo. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I didn't know how to audition. They said, they said, please slate for us. And I just stood there and didn't even say anything. Cause I'm like, what the heck? What the heck is a slate? I'm surprised you even had the courage. I mean, just your intestinal fortitude after what happened to you to even step back in the ring. I, I honestly, you know, I felt like I was just going through the motions and I was in sort of a confusing dream. I didn't know what to do. I was almost in survival mode. You know, I, and you did, and you did, and you, and you did survive. I did. I, but I, I remember standing in that room and, you know, it was a, it was a, I remember the role called for musical background preferred or something. So I bring my guitar and I'm so nervous. I'm sweating. I'm wearing a bright blue, royal blue t-shirt. I should have worn black. I look down when they ask me to slate. I don't even say anything. I just look down because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I see sweat stains. I kid you not down to my belly button under my arms. I was so nervous. I was a wreck. Like I, and I sat down and I did the scenes. I pull out my guitar. I start singing and, you know, jamming. I'm so nervous. I don't even know what's coming out of my mouth. And I was hired for that role. And it was, I remember I was walking on the street and I pick up my phone. It was a number I didn't know. And they said, yeah, you know, you, you got the role. And I was so stunned that something actually worked to my benefit. I didn't even respond to the, the, the woman on the phone call. I mean, I was quiet. I just went silent for, and she said, hello, Kelly, are you there? Is this, is this Kelly? This is Kelly, right? This is the number, you know, you put on the sign in sheet on the audition. And I was so stunned that actually something happened that I wanted came out of yeah I didn't even know how to react and I and so funny enough I go and I film this um horror movie we shoot in somebody's basement for 75 dollars a day and I had the best time and what is it I guess four years later that same director calls me and makes me a lead across from Bruce Frickin' 
Willis. The same later. director remembered me four years later from that indie horror film we did and hired me as a lead actor across from Bruce Willis in the movie I have out right now called Deadlock. For me, it's like that when you say attrition, Alex, and we're talking about it, not to diminish it, but you could have easily taken yourself out of this entire thing. You could have just packed it up and left. And I yeah. think this is something that people don't understand. What Not only the financial... You know, I think, Kelly, you and I were talking about, like, when you go into a production, you're working, like, you know, from when you get up to when you go to bed. Like, If, if you go to bed. You're talking about maybe four or five hours. And that's daily yeah. for, for weeks on end. And I don't think people understand that. It is not nine to five. No. With a lunch break. It's not even close. And then the work you have to do outside of that that isn't paid, which is auditioning, Zoom calls. Yeah, memorizing, character work, whatever it is. Yeah, just, just your own study and betterment. Alex spends hours and hours a day writing that is unpaid. And then just to be able to survive that. Do you remember during this time, Kelly... And we'll get to the greenlit moment, but do you remember, did you always have a love for movies and were, did they ever, were, was there, like for me, when I had dark times, I would always go back to watching my favorite movies or try to find something that brought me, you know, that could take me away a bit. Because I think some of, you know, I think for a lot of us growing up in our teenage years, when we were like, oh, I think I want to be in the movie business i want to create we we always have this connection to good movies and how they can take us away do you remember having that did that was that a part of like your own self oh self yeah. help during this time i mean oh, did you yeah. go home and crawl under the you know climb on the air mattress and, <laughs> no and seriously like, yeah i i did and i think that you make a really valid point I think that the reason why so many people want to be in movies is because it's magical and it takes you out of the real world. And for an hour and a half, 90 minutes to two hours, you're not dealing with your problems. You are immersed right. in an entirely different world. And it takes you out of whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're worried about, now you're worrying about someone else and their issues of what they're having and how they're coping and their arc. And I think that I definitely utilized film as a tool because where else do you turn? It's like if you're yeah, you embarrassed. Alone at this point. Yeah, it's I, I remember I was I always used to be very embarrassed to talk to people because they would always ask questions, right? And whenever people ask questions, you're expected to give an answer. And a lot of times I didn't really want to give an answer. Like, oh, how things are going? I don't know. Horribly. Well, do you like your apartment? <laughs> um, absolutely not. Oh, well, are you working on anything? No. Besides, no, no. Well, why did you do this? I don't know either right now. Sorry. You know, it's so I almost avoided a little bit communication um, because I just honestly didn't know what to say. And I, you're like, I don't, I don't have a good word right now. Yeah. So if we could talk about something completely off topic, that would be great. And How's I think I just isolated myself a little bit, honestly. I mean, I don't think this was the healthiest approach, but that's what right. I did. And I found, you know, a lot of my friends back in Carolina, I stopped talking to pretty quickly. I separated myself 
And I think I did that. It was sort of a coping mechanism. And I spent a lot of my time alone. And I, not that I hadn't really done that before, but I hadn't done it in this situation before. And it was very different. I definitely filled my, my time. I learned how to be happy on my own and alone. And that is hard to do sometimes. But I think, I think that I think it was necessary for, I think it was necessary to do in order to establish a good base for myself in order to build off of. So would you read, would you, did you watch movies? Do you remember anything that specifically got you through those times? Was there something that you watched over and over again that helped? Gladiator with Russell Crowe. And that's forever my favorite movie. And I was, I was like, you know what? If he can do this, I can, I can do this. Like this is, this is nothing. If he can darn fight. Yeah, bury his wife and kid, become a slave, yeah. then and, and also be Russell Crowe. At the same time. At the same time. <laughs> How challenging. Well, yeah, and that's uh, that, that's a very clear, like, good guy, bad guy. Has it? I mean, it's a goal-oriented movie. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Man against the world. Yeah, one-man yeah. show, really. He prevails, yeah. you know? I loved it. I just loved seeing a story where one, one person really and one person alone did it all and then completely got murdered in the end nice nice message <laughs> <laughs> so this this person that hired you for 75 dollars a day which was your your first feature coming yeah. out of the abyss and then four years later working getting to work with bruce willis was that what we, you know, the name of the show, how I got greenlit and what we call the greenlit moment was, do you remember a time where you were standing somewhere on set or in an office or, or at a dinner, whatever, where you were like, like you almost step away. You're out, you have an out of body experience where you're like, I'm, I've actually out of all the tragedy, trial and tribulation that I've gone through. I, I can't believe I'm here. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that I had, before Deadlock, I had done, you know, a few bigger films and then a few smaller films. Like they were all interspliced. But it was funny because I'd never felt like I had worked with somebody to where I said the name and everyone sort of stopped talking. Like I would say, even Terrence Howard, he's extremely well-known. He's a fantastic A-list actor. But sometimes you have to follow up with Iron Man and Red Tails and Hustle and Flow. And then people say, oh, you know, yes, yes, yes. But Bruce Willis, I mean, you say Bruce Willis and everybody knows who the heck Bruce Willis is. Yeah. And I was, there were, there were two moments. One, when I was packing my bags to go, I'll remember my dad, you know, my mom and dad, my dad would always ask, oh, you know, is anybody I've heard of in this one? And I would say, oh, so-and-so That's always the first from question. so-and-so. That's you know, I'd have to do like yeah. the chain of explaining who the people were and like what they were from. And maybe 10 years ago, you saw them in this show across from this other person. It, it was a whole, you know, it was a whole speech every time. I remember I'm packing my bag. He goes, oh, so, you know, is, is anyone in this one that I've heard of? And I said, Bruce Willis. And I continue packing and he's, he stops his Keurig coffee and he turns and he goes, 
the Bruce Willis? And I said, yeah, the Bruce Willis. Ronald Whitlock? I'm not sure if you heard, but there's been an incident. My son? Cops killed him. It's a bit more complicated than that. It's crystal clear to me. Like, that reaction, you know, was iconic. The, the, the Bruce Willis. And then I think the other time, you know, when, because as you know, in film and in this flippin' entertainment industry, we don't know if anything's happening before we're on set. Sometimes even when we're on set, we only know it happened when we see the movie on the screen. That's when we're only 100% sure that this stuff actually happens. So... (laughs) I was still nervous that something would fall through, that, you know, it wouldn't happen. I was so, so insanely excited, nervous, anxious, whatever you want to call it. Sweaty. I'm always sweaty. <laughs> um, yeah, there, Kelly, you're saying, because you just don't know, did, am I going to make it into the final cut of the movie, right? Yeah. I mean, or, you know, even like, we filmed it and it, I mean, nobody's ever seen it to this day. I mean, things <laughs> fall apart all the time. On the indie side, right. We Many films just never get finished. Never see yeah, the light. Yeah, or they don't have money for post-production or whatever. It's always something. Yeah there's, yeah. there's so many stories out there, and this is what I tell people. If you start a movie and you really feel the momentum going, you have to finish it. Like, do not let it sit on a hard drive somewhere. Yeah. Don't not finish your movie because it is an it is a total talk about a waste of time and money. If you don't, fit, even if you have to learn to edit edit it yourself, yeah, by any means necessary. But it, did you know that Tarantino did a film before Reservoir Dogs? No, I didn't. No, know I didn't. That. He, he, yep, he did a film. There's like clips of it online. Very classic indie film, not like Reservoir Dogs. And it shot on the weekends, you know, the classic thing where oh, he'd make a little money and then they'd shoot and da-da-da-da. And he is like this about it. He's like, it's so, so he did finally finish it. And he's like, this is total shit. I don't want it. I'd never see it. So, anyway, I, I, I never knew that. I didn't either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I love those stories because... I think that there's a phenomenon, maybe we just know it because we're here, but it probably exists in the world at large, which is when you when you happen to succeed at your chosen field, that's when the revisionist history starts. So you'll, you know, you'll, someone will interview you or you'll be talking about your career and it, all the humps and bumps and the real humanity will start to fall away and all is left is like this godlike status of, well, of course my success was pretty Everything mm-hmm. went exactly according yeah. to plan. Yeah. And the answer is no. God and he, he popped to it early <laughs> in his career. He's like, it sucked. You know, I learned a lot, but it was, it was just a failed effort. And if you're enjoying our episode with Kelly Lynn Ryder today, please be sure to listen to How I Got Greenlit's episode eight with Craig Perry, where Craig talks about forgiveness and permission in film production. My favorite is the Spielberg example where he literally did sneak onto the lot at Universal in a suit 
and occupied an empty office for some weeks. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like forgiveness, then permission. Now, to be fair, things have changed. I think the Internet has, uh, like, you know, uh, has brought the crazies out. You can't really do that anymore. But I think it demonstrates that you have to put yourself out there. You have to make yourself vulnerable so that you have opportunities to find uh, luck. Because everything that's ever happened to me has not been, I think, a function of me being smart. It's a function of me being lucky, but being smart enough to know when I'm being lucky and then to capitalize on it. There's nothing worse than when you're driving home going, huh, I totally missed that moment because it never comes back. That's really all it is, is knowing when there's a there's a a chance for opportunity and to capitalize on it. And that's just luck. You're never going to sort of create a scenario where your genius is going to unfurl like a flag and everyone's going to salute. It's just about knowing when to say the right thing at the right time and to know when the right time is happening. Now back to our conversation with the multi-talented Kelly Lynn Ryder. So you tell your dad this and as you're packing and he's like the Bruce Willis (laughs) and then, and then you go shoot this thing, right? Yeah. I think it really hit me when, so Bruce obviously is stupid expensive to get on set. So they condense his days. They don't just keep him there for the whole shoot. You, it's actually really funny how they do it. In a lot of Bruce films, he's so expensive. They want to utilize his time on set as best as possible. So, I mean, I'm sure they do this with all, all the big dogs, but they, there are a lot of close ups because they will shoot everyone else. Even, you know, they'll put his body double in and they'll shoot your half of the scene. And then when he comes in for the day, they just shoot his close-ups for all the scenes he's in. But I was lucky enough to do a two-shot. And when they, you know, they got everything ready, they brought him in from his trailer. And I had already filmed. So this is the other thing. We were shooting in the height of COVID in Cordial, Georgia. And I absolutely love small towns. I absolutely loved Cordial. But in the South, they were a lot more lackadaisical sort of with, with masks and everything. And (laughs) you don't say, and I knew that if I contracted COVID anywhere on that set before I filmed with Bruce Willis, I could be replaced. Yeah. And I think everyone on that set thought there was something legitimately wrong with me. I would not leave. When I say would not leave, I mean would not leave. I, they were doing cast dinners and like meeting each other, which is what, you know, you should do on any set. I was so terrified. I would get COVID. I would not leave my room. I would eat inside of my room. I would go pick up my food from the kitchen, uh, at the hotel with gloves, a, N95, a KN95 or double KN95s under a face shield. I would, I would like carry my peroxide and I would spray every door. Oh, like in, I was on a mission to be in a movie with Bruce Willis to survive. And I think there should be a movie about that. (laughs) I think everybody was like, what's wrong with this girl? (laughs) She's crazy. But your goal was, I have an opportunity to do a movie, and as we, you know, and as we know now, he's retired. He's basically yeah. retired. 
unfortunately for all of us who love Bruce Willis. And Deadlock, I don't know if he has another one coming out past that. I think that, that was one of the last. I think there might there might be another one, but that was right at the end. And I just I was doing everything in my power to not mess that opportunity up. So you spraying you're spraying down door handles, <laughs> you're not coming out of your room, you show up on set. Did you know? Did you know that he was that your two shot was that day? Because they don't really tell you what blocking is until you have your blocking rehearsal. So did you know that blocking there was a possibility? Blocking is no. how and where the actors move on the set. Yeah, before yeah, Kelly, do you want to explain what blocking is? Do you want to do like a little yeah. demo for blocking? Blocking is basically telling I, I like to think of it as almost a chess game. If the actors are the chess pieces you tell them how and where they can move at what points. You sort of run through the physical motions of the scene, I think is sort of sort of what it comes down to, right? No, that's yeah, that's great. Yeah. Great explanation. And so I knew And then how the camera sort of moves with it. Yes. How how where the people are, where the camera is, if the camera moves, where the people move, it's it's like dance uh, instruction. It's a dance. Yeah. yeah, it's like choreog. It's cho- it's the choreography. Even of the getting or the your angles and making sure you know you're mm-hmm. you look Focus good in the view. And- yeah. So not only do you have to memorize your lines and have that down with the passion and inflection that you're supposed to have for the scene, but you also have to remember you have to keep your head in a certain. <laughs> you know, 3D plane to make sure that you're in focus. Yeah, you can't move too much or the whole scene. Yeah, you basically screw up the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And then they're like, oh, cut. No one ever says it like that. And so you get to set, go, go from there. Kelly. Yeah. So I get to set and I am number one, not expecting a two shot because I've heard sort of how the Bruce movies normally go down. And I knew that we were doing what I thought was his coverage. I saw him on the call sheet. It was like, number one, you know, Bruce Willis. Oh, my God. I think it's a BW. Actually, that's what it said. It didn't say Bruce Willis. It said number one on the call sheet, BW. And you're like, who's who's BW? That doesn't make sense. Um, well, any BWs. What was it cordial? Oh, my gosh. He was the sweetest. He was the nicest and you could tell that whenever he was doing his scenes he had a twinkle in his eye he really did you could see that he really enjoyed what he was doing which was beautiful to me to see that somebody of his level and you know of the massive resume that he's done was still enjoying it as much as he was and I was brought I remember they brought me into the room and Jared, the director, sort of guided me in and he goes, okay, so this is what's going to happen. I know it was supposed to be his coverage. We're actually going to do a two-shot and we're going to get the scene. Unfortunately, that feckless piece of shit is my brother. Stepbrother. So, my intel was spot on. But if you think that no account son of a bitch is going to come running down here just because I call him, your intel's for shit, Hoss. Is that right? He's a low-life, dirty cop. Shit, he's probably worse than Fulbright. Fulbright, he was just roped in on this whole damn thing. He's nothing but a follower. He's just 
loyal to a fault. I got that feeling. It was, you know, people were still setting up a little bit, which thank goodness I had a few minutes to sort of regain composure because composure. that, but I mean, I mean, I'm, oh, you talk about sweating. Now we're sweating. Like my welding suit is, it's getting pretty toasty in here. That was the moment. That was the, oh my gosh, my Greenland moment. I am sitting across from Bruce Willis in a movie that I was hired to be on. And I, I'm supposed to be here. Like, not only did I want to be here, but a group of people wanted me to be sitting here right now across from Bruce Willis. And I, that was it. I, I felt, I don't know if I'm a runner and after, you know, 10 miles or so, I get this runner's high and I felt just a tingle over my entire body. It started from my toes and my fingertips and just covered everything in between. It was it was like an electric shock. I mean, my I had goosebumps everywhere. I just felt like every night I had stayed up working and every script I had read and every tear I had shed, as cheesy as it sounds, that moment alone made everything, you know, 10 times worth it. All right. So now, Kelly, we, you know, we've kind of gone through the first two segments of the show, which is you know, where you came from, where you started, where your love of the, of the film industry came from and the trials and tribulations as a young actor getting through all those things. And, you know, we like to just kind of slide right into the third segment of the show, which is something that should be really cool. We ask people that are on the show to bring one of their favorite films with them, as we like to call them, Alex, they're B-sides, right? Yeah, B-sides. It's just, uh, it's a film by a famous director with a much more well-known A-side. So I would say for me, Danny Boyle is the train spotting guy, right? And he's done a ton of films, but The Beach is probably known just more as a DiCaprio movie than a Danny Boyle movie. So that that was a good, it's a good B-side. It's kind of, it's not, it's not the first thing you think of. It's like, it's not, oh, Coppola Godfather. Like, let's, you know, like, like, let's watch Dementia 13, which was his first movie, a no-budget horror movie with Roger Corman, you know? So I, I think it's a great choice. I'm curious, is it just the movie you like, or is there some kind of personal connection for you? Like, are you and you, you just get, got did back. Did it get from, you through a tough time, like, like Gladiator? Or, and, and you just got back from filming in Thailand. I which did. Was where, which was ah. where The Beach was filmed. I guess there's this urban myth going around here at the moment. It's about a beach. A secret beach. On an island that no one can get to. Somewhere, paradise must exist. I just feel like everyone tries to do something different, but they always wind up doing the same damn thing. One kilometer. Two. Richard? I don't know. I'm thinking miles, not kilometers. I'm American. So? So let's go. just want to focus on Danny Boyle just for a hot second. Transpotting, obviously, a movie that I've watched on VHS, I don't know, a hundred times conservatively, mm-hmm. and will always watch it when it's on. I don't know. Do you guys like Transpotting? Oh, I yeah. couldn't watch it a hundred times. It's a movie that's very, very well made and very powerful, and I've only seen it like four times because it's too, it's like too much. And and I can understand that. I really am attracted to that. The the way that movie is put together. It's hard to watch, but 
at times since there's some really tough, you know, have, seeing people strung out on heroin is tough. But but Danny Boyle has made such a wide range of movies. And frankly, when you mentioned it, Kelly, I had I've seen the beach. I love the beach. I've actually been to that beach. Mm. <laughs> but I did not know I had forgotten that Danny Boyle directed it. And he's done so many different kind of movies, but the beach is a Danny Boyle movie. And to me, anyway, the way it's made. Yeah, I definitely think that he put his flavor in it, but it was different. And, you know, I was trying to go back to, because I've always liked that movie, but I'm not sure why it's it wasn't a bigger hit than it was. I guess it's sort of a niche audience. It's an acquired taste. It's a little eclectic. But I, I mean, I think it's a good film. And then you have Young Leo too. And I actually looked back. So Titanic was 1997. Yeah, it was after. It, it was, was after Titanic. After Titanic, mm-hmm. after Romeo and Juliet, which was 1996. Yeah, mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Quick and the Dead was 95. Like he had a string of hits. And then he was an established. He was an established Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Did it come out? 2000. Do you I know think it day? helped him get more money too. The the whole story was that it was supposed to be Ewan McGregor, and they had a like famous like falling out. And when he and the studio said, if you cast an American, if you cast DiCaprio and you make the character American, we'll give you more money. So Wait a okay. second, you're oh. saying that you're saying that Ewan McGregor because his he guy did work, he did work his with guy. the other they, yeah, yeah he did they work came with the together. other guy they, they did from transpotting yeah. yeah so are they not are they yeah, Robert not Carlyle well yeah. uh, I think they've sort of like cleaned it up now Obi-Wan but, came back uh, yeah like there was a real like public pissing match about it whatever and are you uh, because of the beach or yeah, I did yeah, not they had a, you know, I didn't know that quote, created, he was Ewan was attached like he left the production I don't know if they wow. shot. Yeah. That movie would have been completely different. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. I think that he had worked with one, I think Danny Boyle's, one of his first films, uh, he was a star of because I was looking back to see sort of how that happened, but it makes sense. They knew each other. Oh, dear. <laughs> Are you, was that oh, dear, because the relationship fell apart? Yes. Or did something happen personally? Oh, no. Just the relationship like, fell apart. Coffee? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's I did not know that, Alex. Fantastic, fantastic background. Um, that's amazing. And so uh, Leo at the height of not really, you know, this was young Leo still, and, but just crushing it like bam, bam, bam. The beach comes out. It, I don't remember the date of release. Was it in 2000? Did you say it was in 2000? 2000. Yeah. 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 So it was pre uh, 9-11. So 9-11 had nothing to do with it. It didn't do poorly at the box office. I actually went to see it in the theater. I remember that. And I don't know why. I wasn't a Leo fan. I, you know, I wasn't a, I didn't, I wasn't a Titanic fan, but I went to go see the beach and I don't remember it being related to Danny Boyle, but I will say this, watching it and revisiting it, which I love to do when we do these things it is a Danny Boyle movie. There are very, he has a style, the, you know, he has what he does and there are instances in that, but there are things that he does in that movie that he doesn't do in other movies. And, and I, I really like it. You know, it's a simple idea, you know, but it's awesome. And obviously in the backdrop of, 
if you know anything about filmmaking or the problems of filmmaking and having actually physically been to where that beach is, how they did some of the shots that they did unbelievable like i do not know because it was before drones and it was before i don't know how they got how did they i don't know because that beach to get out there is tough and there aren't big boats that go out there to my knowledge and so i know there's a giant techno crane shot in that movie at least some type of crane from back in the day where they snake around from the beach, like from the huts where they live to the, to the beach in one, sh- in a one take. And I'm like, wow, the, how did they do that? The scenery is just absolutely stunning the whole time. It's entertaining. It's, I like the pace of it. And then every time it sort of plateaus a bit, something new happens that you weren't expecting, or at least I wasn't at all. Um, and I also think that the whole message behind this movie is it's not the destination. It's very much the journey, which is something I very, very much try to implement in my life. And in this industry, I think we all know at this point that if we wait to get to the end in order to be happy, we'll never be there. We'll never reach our happiness. And the end to some people or the goal might never come. I mean, our paths change and twist and we end up on roads we never thought were even there before. I mean, we we go all over the place in this industry. And I think that I've tried to learn over time that you really need to embrace every moment of it. Because if you just wait for that one moment, you've everything else has passed. And I think that this movie really sort of hones that in. And in the very last line of the movie, he said, um, actually, I thought it was really beautiful. He said, I still believe in paradise, but now I know it's not some place you can look for. It's not where you go. It's how you feel for a moment in your life when you're a part of something. And if you find that moment, it lasts forever. And I think that that is what film is. Making a movie, being in this industry, it's not necessarily a certain point we're trying to all fight to get to. It's this roller coaster. We're all on together. And like we, I mean, even what we were saying the first conversation of this podcast, how we were talking about whenever you film a movie, you all have to come together and get the job done. You work together, you bond, you're up all night. You are part of something much greater than just yourself. And in order to get it done, you really have to act like a family. You establish relationships. Some drop off, some stay forever, but you are part of something bigger. And that moment lasts forever. It really does. And so Leo the way he encapsulated this character and the whole premise of how it's the whole part, it's all parts of it. It's not just the end that should be appreciated. Really just hit home with me. It's uh gives me the, it gives me the feels. <laughs> the thing you said about, um, I mean, we've been talking about, I think survival skills. 
I would say, I mean, look, obviously doing a scene with Bruce Willis is a very clean, uh, greenlit moment, but I, I'm more taken by your story to say that your personal greenlit moment was when you made an internal decision to see the best in the business and not let it twist you into the person that you're not and that your success is in internal and in yeah. your attitude and in your work ethic that, you know, you're not going to let the bastards get you down. Sure. But also I think a lot of us artists are perfectionists and yeah. we're crippled by, is this going to be good enough? Low self-esteem, you know, tell me I'm a good boy, whatever the version of that is, but it's extreme. It's like, we must be vulnerable to be good. And then we get, hurt early on and you have to keep going you have to re-expose yourself you can't shut down and just be safe or you lose something and so i you know oh you lose yourself you well you lose your creativity you know you lose your best self you lose your 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 actual self but you also lose you, you know i i i consider creativity it's just an antenna okay we don't we don't really generate anything from inside what our solar plexus no we're a transmitter there's ideas in the in in the universe in the collective unconscious pick your terminology and you know we tune into that and we tune into that when we're quiet we turn into that when we're you know not upset about something else or not feeling vulnerable and and you manage to you know go bring it around you manage to create a beach inside yourself so that those highs and lows are not so painful and uh, or overwhelming and you can function and, and thrive. Alex, that's great. It's, yeah, no, that's pretty profound. I'm going to be honest. Yeah, it's very, it's very <laughs> profound, Alex. You fucking threw it down, dog. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I did my beach trip this week, so I'm in a better place. Right. I, I have to agree with Alex. I think... You greenlit yourself right. in that's some ways. Yeah, I think that's exactly what you're trying to do. That's what you transubstantiated pain into art and into positive attitude that it is attractive to working with people. Because that's what you need. You can't be the like grumpy genius, the price of genius because you're angry or you're bitter or whatever. Or I deserve it's, more. It, it, right, right. And, and it's about hum- humility. It's about collaboration like we just we can't do this alone even a writer at some point needs to you know reach out to had to, to build you know a coalition of the willing to make a movie and if you're if you're not happy with yourself people aren't going to want to work with you and then you're going to get more unhappy <laughs> it's true it's a it's a very yeah. vicious cycle and i really did try and in a way you know find my own beach and find this thing we all call paradise in everyday life in this in this industry and keep pursuing and keep networking and keep establishing friendships and relationships because that is what has made me prevail over anything else here and now. And the opportunities I get have been brought by people genuinely liking me and believing in me and wanting to work with me because of who I am. And I I really appreciate you two, you know, noticing that and 
and verbalizing it. I really do. I'm very grateful. Oh, stop it. Well, <laughs> well we are too. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. For sharing your, your truth. No, fun. It's very inspirational. Anyway, without further ado, Ryan. Well, I was just going to say, just to kind of wrap up, Kelly, I know you're a busy person. <laughs> what do you have coming up? Like, what what can we be on the lookout for? We know Deadlock's available. It's out there on pay-per-view right now. In a plane seat You can get it on a plane. You. you can get it on New Netflix New Zealand. I think it's coming to Netflix US. I was really excited. I went to look, and there's a link to it actually on Netflix US. It just, it doesn't, it says preview not available, but it lets you add it to your list on Netflix. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's, I think I actually read in the trains that it's coming. So, so I think it's coming. And if it comes to Netflix, I'm going to be honest, I, I'm going to have a solo party. <laughs> Do we need to have another episode, <laughs> Kelly Lynn Ryder part two, where we have to change your greenlit moment? I am to going Netflix? to make a sign with permanent marker that says I what? am on a movie on Netflix. And with then, spark- oh, with, with sparkle. I'm going to shoot fireworks off of the sign. And I'm going to run <laughs> up and down my street screaming yeah. with a megaphone at the top of my lungs. And I'm, yeah, no, that's a bucket lister right there. Um, that's awesome. So I'm to, st- to no stay shame. on brand, you should wear a sandwich board. Sandwich board. <laughs> like Die Hard 3. I have a really fun shark movie coming out called Man Eater. Um, what was that? Okay, okay. Guys, it's fine. Dolphins are a good sign. Really? Oh my god! I shot it one year ago today, actually, in Maui, in Hawaii. And I was a lead across from Trace Adkins, the country singer, Nikki Whelan, and Shane West from A Walk to Remember with Mandy Moore. Mm-hmm. I post everything or try to on my social media. My Instagram is just my first and last name. My Instagram is at Kelly Ryder, K-E-L-L-Y-R-E-I-T. T-E-R. And then I also have a lot of fun action movies coming out. So the one I just co-executive produced in Thailand was called Three Days in the Lay. That's a World War II movie loosely based on the true story of U.S. Marine John Bassalone, which I love history. So I was super excited to be not only in front of the camera on that one, but also behind. I associate produced a Danny Trejo movie coming out. I was in another action called Mojave Diamonds. Wait, 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 wait. Do you get eaten by the shark or can you tell us that? You know, I think that movies with sharks, things like that generally tend to happen. You get eaten. (laughs) (laughs) That is all I will say. (sighs) Uh, Was it fun? Oh, it was a blast. Like, it was so funny, too, because... So Shane West, I every time we went out to dinner as a cast or whatever, we get all of our meals free. Females, we had female stalkers in Maui. We're out at a bar one night as a cast, and the Uber Eats girl goes to comes to drop off our Uber Eats food, sees Shane West, and sit down. She sits down. She will not leave. 
She will not leave the bar. Security had to kick Shut her out. She Shut would, up. No, it was so awkward. Like, I did not realize, <laughs> like, Shane she West, for, Shane was, West, you know. I, she was forward about this. Oh, my God. She wouldn't leave. We had to get security. No joke. Was it uncomfortable? She, she sat there for about three and a half hours with us, just looking at Shane Wait, across the table. But hold on one second. Three and a half hours, that's a... That's a long... I thought you were going to say three and a half minutes. No. But she actually hung out for hours? Oh, yeah. She started to eat the food she dropped off. <laughs> <laughs> we were so lost. Oh, my God. Was she having conversation or was she just no. in dreamland? She was just sitting in her chair at the opposite staring end of the table, staring at Shane West, <laughs> eating French fries while making eye contact and not blinking. I'm not kidding you. It was the strangest thing I've ever... I was so uncomfortable. I love it. And then I look over to Shane and I go, are you okay? He goes, yeah, it happens all the time. I'm like, okay, whatever. Such is life life for me. Oh, geez. He's a good dude. And what else? What else you got, girls? Come on. Yeah, Mojave Diamonds. Um, We have Slother House, which we filmed in flippin' Serbia together. Belgrade, Serbia. Slother House, which is... It's gonna... I... I got to think it's going to be funny. Oh, it's going to be hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah. I actually think that one has opportunity to almost be cult following because there's no, there's no doubt about it. It's so original. I I mean, I've never seen anything quite like Slother House. No, I'm not sure anyone has. (laughs) And it'll be really, it'll be really, I will say this one of the, and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I can't reveal too much, but I will say this. One of the funnest, most happy, you know, the casts that we put together for that with you and uh, Grace Patterson and Olivia Royer and some of the other young ladies who are in it who are really uh, Sid Craven from the UK. Yeah. Andrew Horton. Just a great young cast and just so like 30 days of ridiculous. I mean, I was over there for three months, but just like, was that not fun or what? Oh you my and Grace gosh. We had a blast. I mean, also just shooting in another country is, yeah. is magic because you're not just only on set living the magic. You're living the magic off set too. You're exploring things. You're I mean we shot at the what the Royal Palace of Belgrade or something. Yeah, where the king used to, yeah. And and also just the fact that you are when you're in a, a country that you don't speak the language of you really become a close you, things get close. Yeah. Yeah, they get close. <laughs> Things get close. The family dynamic is real, you know? Yeah, because that's all That's all you got. That's all you got. I mean, but gorgeous place. Belgrade, fantastic. I would recommend it to anybody. I know it's just, we've made a lot of good friends over there. But Slaughter House, I think that'll be out probably in the third quarter of this year. I don't know, mm-hmm. but it will, it will stay called Slaughter House. So get prepared for Slaughter House. Yes. <laughs> Alex, do you have any other questions? I think, Kelly, that, you know, anything else you'd like to add? I just had a blast. I want to say to everybody listening and and y'all too, you know, this is a really wonderful way to almost decompress. And I think just the camaraderie of knowing that you have people to talk to and people listening, you do have a team on your side, whether you're actually physically on set filming or off. 
you do have supporters and people that want to see you win. And this was a really good reminder to me that, you know, I, I can call you Ryan and we can hop on and talk. It's just, it's really nice having that friendship in this town. And I, I really appreciate everybody listening, you know, listening to my story. And I'm sure that everybody's been through something in this town and a million times over, but it's fun to share. And I appreciate being here. Well, we, we appreciate you. And, and personally, just between you and I, I love you. I think the world of you, I, I'm glad we're friends. I'm glad we, we became friends and family. And uh, I think the world of you and I, I can't see us uh, not talking ever because you're just, you're fantastic to be around and, and to talk to on the phone and to text with. And you're well on your way, Kelly. And I can't, the world is going to get to know you a lot more as we move on through the years. And I, I'm just excited for you because you're just, you're an all-star and uh, you're, and not only that, but you can crown command and you can get scared on command and you have seriously God-given talent in the acting world. And I, I'm just, I'm glad, I'm glad the world or whatever spirits above put us together because uh, you're fantastic. So thanks for coming on the show. This has been how I got greenlit with Kelly Lynn Ryder. And uh, be sure to join us at, at, how I got greenlit on Instagram and Twitter. Absolutely. And you Please can also do. email us at how I got greenlit at gmail. Right. So if you have questions, comments, send them in. Our we'll jokes. Them. Jokes. We do. We'll do your jokes on air and we might even, uh, you know, if you have a question, we might even answer it on air. Who knows? This has been mailbag. how I got green. What? Well, mailbag. <laughs> mailbag. We'll do a mailbag segment. Yeah, hey, exactly. Kelly, will you come back for a mailbag segment? If we have a mailbag. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. How I got greenlit. Uh, I'm Alex Legion. I'm Ryan Gibson. Thanks, everybody. Say bye, Kelly. Bye, y'all. Next Chapter Podcasts.